to be back with you guys. I missed our regular Wednesday night meetings over the past, well, it was right before Thanksgiving. How long has that been? Two months, I think it was. Um, so it's, it's just so good to be um, kind of back with family, which is kind of what I feel like Wednesday night community is. So if, if you're new to Wednesday night community, uh, this is just a weekly gathering where we, we worship, we do some in-depth Bible study, uh, we, we take communion, and uh, we have snacks, which I'm always thankful for, our snack people who set up and break down. So thank you for doing that coffee. And this is kind of an informal setting. So during the night, <clears throat> you know, if you're a little tired, if you're like Pastor Steve and you tend to fall asleep halfway through the message, get up and go get some coffee, uh, whatever it takes to stay awake. But um, <clears throat> like I said, really glad to be back here with you guys. Two things real quickly before we get going. <clears throat> One is, and this is on the back of your bulletin. Actually, both of them are on the back of your bulletin. Um, the first thing is... We have our uh, fourth annual Israel study tour that's coming up, and the, the deadline for that is coming up. That's written in red. That's really hard to read. January 28th is the deadline for that. So uh, this is the one year that'll probably be different than other years. We're adding two years in Jordan. So we're actually going over. We'll be visiting Petra and some of the Jordanian sites. And uh, we, I think there are only uh, six spots left. So if you're interested in a 2020 trip, uh, start out the decade in this way. Would love to have you join us in our Israel trip. It's just, it's life transforming and uh, y it will change the way you read your Bible. I promise you that. It will really change the way that you engage with it. So we'd love to have you. And then secondly, on Sunday mornings, we have a number of our teachers. These are, some of them are therapists, some of them are Bible teachers, some of them just have different backgrounds that uh, they come in on Sunday mornings at during the 10 o'clock service and the 11.30 in one of our classrooms upstairs and teach different classes. And there's everything from, you know, ones on mental health to um, parents of middle school, which there's overlap there, if you can't tell, um, looking at, you know, Islam, how do we, how do we think about that? Uh, just so many different topics. So take a look at those. And it's a great place to get in a smaller setting, a smaller group of people where you can build relationships differently than in larger group settings and really learn, really grow in some areas. So uh, you're invited to, to come to those. <clears throat> um, we're starting a new series and um, looking at the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, uh, asking this question, who, who are you becoming? Which is a question that has been sort of haunting me for uh, a number of years, especially there, there's one author named Dallas Willard who uh, I'm a huge fan of. And all of his writings to me have this undercurrent of that question, <laughs> who are you becoming? And so anytime I, I sort of encounter that, I, I don't know if it's just that filter I have, I'm asking that question. And the series, looking at the, the, this passage in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, completely confronts us with that very question. <clears throat> now before we jump into it, let me try to, um, I, I just want to tell you about a, a, a podcast I was listening to this last week, and um, there, there's a connection, I think, maybe. Um, how many of you are familiar with The Bible Project? They, they have short animated videos, you might have seen them on YouTube, where they, ex they explain books of the Bible or themes. Wonderful, it's absolutely fantastic. They also have a podcast in which they, they talk about what they're, what's going to go into the next video. And so it's way more than they can put into a seven, five-minute video. And they might have a couple hours of conversation, but it's really rich, deep stuff. They're, they're doing uh, the, one of their next theme videos is one on the tree of life, 
Remember that? That's the tree that we encounter like in the first couple pages. But what's fascinating is <clears throat> they, they, they connected some dots for me that I hadn't connected before. And they talked about this idea, and again, I'm going to try to distill like an hour podcast into like four minutes, okay? So if you're like, that made no sense, go listen to the podcast. It'll make much more sense. And, and I really would encourage you to listen to it. But basically, they talked about this idea that the Hebrew writers have in mind, <clears throat> right from about like page one and two, they want you to see humans and trees as similar in fact, the way that Genesis, the creation account is set up, if, you, if we could spend more time doing it, I could show you how. But the author wants you to see right from the creation, humans and trees have some sort of a parallel that's going to be tracked as we go throughout the story. For instance, the days in which they're created, there's parallel language. This idea of they are raised up from the ground, only humans and trees are referred to this way, and trees are to bear fruit, and what does it say about humanity? They are to be fruitful and multiply. So right away there's some language connection. And then all throughout the story, and they trace this, there's this connection. Psalm chapter one, do you remember how it begins? It says, the righteous person who meditates on the Torah, what is he like? He's like a tree planted by streams of water, <clears throat> right, this idea? And, all through, and of course at the very end of the story, what do we come back to? What is in the center of new creation? tree of life. And then they went on to say, at, at key strategic points all throughout the narrative, at like hinge moments, there's almost always a tree in some form or another involved. Um, almost every time there's a covenant, there's a tree <clears throat> involved. The very first hinge moment, humanity's fall, well, humanity's potential and then fall circles around two trees, right? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of of life. All of the covenants that are made, there's somehow treated off, and in English, we don't catch it because, like, for instance, here's one difference. In, in, in English, I have a word for tree, but the minute I cut that tree down, I use a different word. What do I call it? It's just wood, right? <laughs> like a dead tree, I don't call it a tree anymore. I call it wood. In Hebrew, they don't do that. The Hebrew word is just eights. Yeah, I have an eights planted in my yard, and my house is made of eights, okay? So the the language right there is, is there all the time. Every single covenant, there's eights involved. There's tree involved. Noah, and, and it's a tree on a high place. What is, Noah builds an ark made of eights. <laughs> and where does it end? It lands on a mountain, a high top, right? And there's a covenant made. Or we look at Abraham. Abraham carries eights wood up to a mountain, right? Um, we see Moses. Moses is on top of a mountain, Mount Sinai, and he receives the covenant. The first time he met God there, how did he meet God on Mount Sinai? In a burning eights, right? Are you seeing it? Um, we, get to, uh, we get to David, and the covenant that's made where he says, I'm going to build you a house because David wants to build him a temple, and his son does it. And so David builds him a temple, Solomon builds him a temple. And we're told it's, it's out of all these different kinds of eights. Do you remember that? From the cedars of Lebanon and all these. In fact, everything that's woven into the temple, even the curtains, do you remember what's woven into the curtains, the image on the curtains? Pomegranate eights, pomegranate trees. It's, it's made, it's, you're supposed to think back to Eden. You're supposed to think back to the tree. Um, the New Testament writers pick up on this. 
Do you know, especially in the book of Acts, do you know what they call Jesus' cross very commonly? The tree on which Jesus died. It's commonly referred to that. The prophets in the Old Testament, when they looked forward to the Messiah, especially uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, do you know what they called the Messiah almost more than anything else? The branch. The branch, the, the root, right? For a woman to be barren, the phrase they would use is she is unrooted from the ground. Are you seeing it? <laughs> it's there, and we oftentimes miss it. And it's, and it's this fascinating picture that <clears throat> they're trying to get us to see. And how many, how many of Jesus' parables? He says, the kingdom of God is like a seed, and that seed is going to grow into beautiful tree, right? Or he likens himself. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches, right? When he talks about self-denial, he says, you're like a seed that has to go into the ground and die in order for what? The eights, the tree to come out. Now, you might be going like, what in the world does this have to do with what we're talking about tonight? Here's, here's the connection I made. Paul, when he talks about spiritual growth, about, about spiritual transformation, what does he use? What's our series on? <laughs> the fruit of the Spirit. Paul's not just picking up some random thing, like, let's see, what should I, what should I refer to this as? <laughs> Paul, in his Hebrew-informed mind, he's picking up on this long tradition, are you with me? This long theme of this idea that as trees, so as trees go, so humans go. And there's this connection, this parallel from like page one to the very end of it. And so when he says, what does spiritual change and spiritual growth look like? Well, it's, it's this, when life is inside of a tree, <laughs> fruit comes. That was intended on page one, but that's intended for you too. You get that. He's picking up on this idea <clears throat> as we think about who we're becoming. And so in this series, the fruit of the Spirit, and again, I, I say that because it, it sort of gives a little bit of a backdrop, doesn't it? It sort of paints this backdrop like, oh, it's this, there's this bigger thing. And anytime we can make, we can like connect dots, because I don't know about you, this is a big, confusing story at times. Do any of you feel that way? This is a very confusing story at places. <laughs> So anytime you can look at it from like a 30,000-foot view and be like, oh, that's really helpful. <laughs> I think it's really good. So even as we're, as we're zooming in on Galatians 5, hopefully you'll see a little bit like, oh, it kind of fits into the whole thing. Are you with me on that? It kind of fits into the whole story. And so we're looking at this question, who are you becoming? Who am I becoming? And what Paul's going to suggest is who you become will be a direct result of the degree to which you allow the Spirit of God to be that sap inside you, to be that life force, in, like in a tree, in your own life. Dallas Willard, the guy I mentioned earlier, one of my favorite lines by him, he said, the most important thing you will get out of your life is the person you become. In fact, he went on to say, the, the most important thing you get out of life your life, and the only thing God will get out of your life is the person you become. So this is such an important question for us to, I think, circle around to, like daily. <laughs> Who am I becoming? Who am I becoming? And so <clears throat> we want to look at this idea of the role of the Holy Spirit. Now, as you think back real quickly, think with me about 
Jesus's ministry. Here's one thing, like for instance, in the book of John, you see this from about chapter four to the very end. Jesus, Jesus keeps saying this phrase. He says it like again and again. He says something like this. I have only done what the Father told me to do. Or he says things like, I have only uh, said to you what the Father said to me. It's this dependence. Does that make sense? Jesus' ministry, now think about this. Jesus' first miracle was where? You remember? The wedding at Cana, right, where he turns the water into wine. It's, he meets these people at a place of their, of their need. So think about this. Jesus had not performed any miracles up to that point. Jesus knew what it was like to be utterly dependent. From what we know in the Gospels, um, probably Jesus' father, Joseph, probably died pretty early on. After we see Jesus going to Jerusalem at age 12, we don't hear about his dad anymore. It's very likely, scholars think, that his father probably passed away early. So Jesus, being the oldest son, would have had to take responsibility for his family, for the younger siblings. So you think about it. Jesus, let's suppose one of his siblings got sick. What would he do? Well, he'd probably go out to the carpentry shop and maybe he'd make a table and then he'd bring the table to the bazaar, put it on his back, take it to the bazaar, and he would try to sell it, right? I wonder what a table looked like that Jesus made. I wonder what he would have sold it for. He would have sold it for a fair price. He would have taken into consideration the materials, the work that he put into it, a just and fair profit, and he would have asked that for it. Someone would have come up to him and said, how much do you want for it? He would have told them. And in the typical, you know, bickering, especially in Middle East culture, ah, that's garbage, it's not worth that, I'll pay you this for it. There's probably some, you know, bantering back and forth. He would have gotten the money, and then he would have had to go to the apothecary and buy some medicine, and then bring it home to his sick sibling. Jesus knows what it's like to be able to, to struggle with what does it mean to take care of a family. Jesus knows what it's like to not necessarily know how the ends are going to be met financially this month. Jesus knows what it's like because he lived every single moment in complete dependence on the Father. He never acted independently of the Father. He only accessed his divine abilities, we could say, insofar as, insofar as the Father said, do that. So he's living this human, fully human life. And so as he enters into his ministry, everything he's doing is, is not by his own power. Are you with me on that? He's, he's only doing in the power of the Spirit in obedience to the Father. Because what? Because that's the life we're called to live. He's not, super, he's not Superman or, you know, nothing. But he wakes up with a, a kink in his neck, okay? He's living a completely human life, a fully human life, though he is the divine Son of God. Why is that important? Because what Jesus said about, I have only done what the Father told me to do, when he's commissioning his followers, okay, before he's going to ascend to the Father, he uses the same language. He says things like this in John 13, what you've seen me do, I want you to do. What you've heard me say, I want you to say. He's commissioning them for life, for ministry in his world to do his work in the very next chapter, John 14, he says, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. <laughs> He's not just saying, hey, go for it, good luck. He says, I want you to do what you saw me do. I want you to say what you saw me say, but I'm not going to leave you as orphans. In John 14, he says, I'm going to send you another helper, 
another counselor. He uses the phrase, the phrase of one just like me. You're still going to have access to my presence, but it's actually going to be closer. It's going to be more intimate. And they don't, they don't know what that means. They can't wrap their minds around that. But he's talking about the Holy Spirit now engaging with them, in them, through them, ministering to the world. Now, there's a lot of confusion. I don't know about you, but um, how, how many of you grew up where there was, you would say, I was kind of confused, or at least early on in your faith journey, about the, like, the, the, the role of the Holy Spirit? Like, like I did. I grew up in a church where um, there was a lot of talk about it, but it was confusing to me. Some of it seemed strange. Some of it seemed goofy. Um, I couldn't, you know, I'd hear one answer here, and that answer would you know, go against this answer that I heard over there. So I had a lot of confusion about the role of the Holy Spirit in my own life and in the life of the church. So what I want to do tonight, and as we go into this series, I want to kind of set the stage because we're looking at the fruit of the Spirit and, and hopefully just kind of clear up, not completely, we'll still have questions, right? But clear up some of those misconceptions about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our own lives. And so if you have a bulletin and you want to follow along, um, on the inside, we're going to kind of walk through these. We're going to look at the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit, and then some other elements here too. <clears throat> so the first thing, let's try to define our terms. Um, how many of you, when you have a conversation with your boss, your spouse, or sometimes you feel like you're talking like this. You know what I mean by that? <laughs> just me? It's probably just me. I feel like I'm doing this a lot. I'm having conversation. I'm saying this, they're saying this, and we completely miss each other. So defining terms, super important, <laughs> right? So let's try to do that to help kind of clear up maybe some of the misconceptions. So number one, <clears throat> baptism of the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? The word baptism, it's not an English word. We're just sort of taking a Greek word and transliterating it. The Greek word is baptizo. Baptizo. It just means to put something into. Um, Homer's Odyssey, he uses this word. It's not a religious word. Homer uses this word when he talks about you. Uh, Ulysses is fighting the Cyclops, and Ulysses kills him. And when he describes the sound of his eye as he is killed by the sword, he says it was the exact same sound that a blacksmith's iron makes when it's baptizo. Can you picture that? It's taking this hot thing and like submerging it. Oh, that sounds gross, right? This giant eye being destroyed. <laughs> but that's the idea. It's the idea of taking something and putting it into something else. And so, for instance, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says that from a one spirit, we were all baptized, baptizo, into one body. That's the body of Christ. To be baptized by the spirit means you are placed into the body of Christ. And that happens the moment you believe. The moment you believe, you are given the Spirit. You are placed into the body of Christ. If you have questions about that, go to Romans chapter 5 sometime. Romans chapter 5 is very clear. Paul makes it very clear that if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. So by being placed into, by the Holy Spirit, the body of Christ, that is this baptizo, this baptism of 
the person into the body of Christ. And the Holy Spirit, at that moment, takes up residence in your life. And it's a, it's a completed action. And so if you've been placed into the body of Christ, the moment you trusted Jesus, the moment you believed, you belong to him. You're in the body of Christ. So there's the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and again, we could say so much more. This is not the final word on this stuff. We're just, we're just trying to kind of home in a little bit on it. Number two, there is the filling by the Holy Spirit. Let me, let me read uh, Ephesians chapter 5 for you, because I think this will be really helpful. Now, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, this will be up on the screens here. He starts out by saying this, walk in love. Okay, this is where he's going. Walk in love. So he says this, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, here, let me kind of give you some context here because I'm skipping some verses. The verses that come after is Paul explaining what goes wrong if you don't have love balanced with truth. That's why it's in about verse 6 or 7 that he says, walk in the light. Light is truth. <laughs> Do we live in a culture which struggles to balance love and truth? What would you say? Yeah, I think so. Do you live in a family that struggles to balance love and truth? Are, do you live in a person, <laughs> yourself, who struggles to balance life and truth? I think it's really really difficult. It's an extremely difficult thing. And so that's why he says, verse 15, he says, look carefully then how you walk. What's so fascinating, this word right here, he says, look carefully therefore how you live. You know what the word carefully is in, in, in Greek? It's the word akrobos. Does that, does that sound like any English word you know? Acrobat. We get the word acrobat from akrobos. Why is that? Because because it's a tension. It's something that you, it's a, it's a balancing act is what he's saying. The way that you're going to walk in your life with faith and truth, or uh, love and, and truth, it's this acrobatic balancing act. And he says in the text, he says, you're not going to do it well unless you're filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is so necessary because you and your own power do not know how to balance love and truth. I think most of us kind of have default settings. Do you think that? I know people who their default setting is like lean toward truth at the expense of love. I know people whose default setting is to lean toward love at the expense of truth because we all have that. No one's perfectly balanced except for Jesus. And so what he says is the Holy Spirit will allow you to acrobatically walk into all those situations that you have to walk into balancing love and truth. Because see, love without truth, what does that look like? What does that, you probably know what it feels like, don't you? Love without truth, I would say, just turns into sort of sentimentality, self-serving, meaningless. Truth without love, what does that feel like? It just sort of degenerates into uh, rigid rule-keeping, right? Pharisaicalism hypocrisy. And so the text says that we're not going to get that balance unless we're filled with the Spirit. So that's why he says, going back to the uh, passage here, verse 15, therefore be careful how you walk, or look carefully how you walk, 
not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do you see how he's ping-ponging back and forth? Love and truth. Understand love. He's going back and forth. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But what's the phrase? Be filled with the Spirit. Now, this is really interesting. Anytime you pick up a commentary on this particular passage, commentators will always say, the language that Paul uses when he says, be filled with the Spirit, it's really weird. It's really, really weird. And here's why. <clears throat> this, this, it's a verb, right? Be filled. He's telling them be filled. <clears throat> Verbs in Greek have a couple different things. They have a tense to them. Does that make sense? Past tense, right? Um, so you can have a past tense, like it happened and it's done. <clears throat> you can have a past tense and like a, it's completed, You can have a present tense. That means it's happening now, but it's continuing to happen. You can have a future tense, and then you can have what's called like a a perfect tense where it happens here, but it never ends kind of thing, okay? This, the tense he's using when he says be filled, it's present tense, okay? That means it's now and now and now. It's at every tick of the clock. It's ongoing. Does that make sense? It's continuous, Every tick of the clock tense, okay? <clears throat> Greek verbs also have a voice. Um, they, they have an active voice, a passive voice, and a middle voice. Let me see if I can give you an example. Um, Sherry, you've got shoes with shoelaces on. <clears throat> if, if both of your shoes are untied, and Sherry, you tie both of your shoes yourself, that's the active voice because she's doing all of the activity herself. Does that make sense? She's tying both of her shoes. The middle voice would be if Sherry ties one and I tie the other. She's involved, but with me. Does that make sense? The passive voice is if she sits there and I come and I tie both of her shoes. I'm doing all of the activity. This phrase here, be filled with the Spirit, it's passive. I'll tie both of the shoes, God says, which is interesting. So it's, it's present tense every single second. <laughs> it's passive. It's done to me. And then the last thing is it's an imperative. What's an imperative? It's a command. Let it be done to you. <laughs> do you get it? This is why commentators, like they, they read this and they go, how do you obey a passive command? <laughs> like, does that, does that feel weird? How do you obey something that I do nothing. I just sit there and let my shoes be tied. But he says, let it be done constantly. Let me keep tying your shoes, is what he's saying again and again and again. And so this is what he's talking about when he says, um, the, the meaning of this construction here is it's, it's present, so it's ongoing every tick of the clock. It's passive, it's done to you. And it's an imperative. You're commanded to let it be done to you. I think what he's saying is this. Your normal Christian, every day, every second life should look like this. That it's regularly, continuously, minute by minute, every single second. Let the Spirit fill you. Now, why is that important? Well, I don't... I think it's because we can get off track 
I mean, maybe you can't. I can. I can get off track really, really easily, really fast. First Thessalonians 5.19 talks about this idea that, that we can quench the Spirit's activity in our life. <clears throat> Ephesians 4.30 says that, that, that I can grieve the Holy Spirit's minute by minute trying to tie my shoes <laughs> activity in my <clears throat> life. We're capable of messing up. We're goofy, aren't we? Um, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and then just leading into chapter 3, says there are three kinds of people. Um, it starts out by saying, first, there's the natural person. This is a person who uh, is, is not alive spiritually. They're not, they're not, they haven't begun a relationship with the God of the universe, the natural person. <clears throat> there's, there's the person who has trusted Jesus, who has begun following him, who has put his faith in who Jesus is. And then there's what they call the carnal man or the fleshly man. It's a weird phrase to us. But <clears throat> it's this idea of someone who, who's a Christian, but they've, they've gotten off the rails. Um, they're not really walking with God. Maybe, maybe they've got distracted by the things that, as Jesus put it, the things that uh, moth and rust destroy. <laughs> they've got distracted by the things that thieves break in and steal, to use <clears throat> one of his phrases. And so consequently, they're, they're not living really anywhere close to even what they would say is really a victorious Christian life or, or a consistent one where there's deep confidence and joy in who God is and who I am. And so they've gotten to the place where the habits of their mind are not love and joy and peace. They've gotten to the place where their interpersonal relationships are not characterized by patience and kindness and goodness. They've gotten to the place where just their daily conduct, how they do life in business, and it, it doesn't look like faithfulness or gentleness or self-control. Um, if uh, if any, anyone here been involved with Crew, formerly Campus Crusade for Christ, okay, a number of people, they, they had this thing that they would talk about called spiritual breathing, and I like it. It would go like this. Okay, think about what's involved in breathing. There's like two acts. <laughs> Inhale, exhale, right? Simple. So they would talk about this idea that as, as I'm walking my life and I'm goofy and I get off track and I, and I mess things up, I exhale, that's confession. The Greek word for confession is just to agree with God about the things he already knows about me. <laughs> confession is just to say, God, I'm weary of this. I'm weary of doing my own thing. I'm weary of continuing just to go back to the same spot, the same place <clears throat> in my life. I confess where I am. I confess the things that I don't want to do. That's, that's the exhale, they would say. It's just confession. And then inhale, what's that? Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That I just say, God, would you fill me? <laughs> would you fill me with that life? The life that's not my own. Confession, exhale. Inhale, fill me with your spirit. Now, how do you know he's going to fill you? Well, 1 John 5, 14, we're, we're told this. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will... He hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked him for. Is it his will to be filled with his spirit? 
Yeah, he commanded it. <laughs> it has to be. So when you're filled with his spirit, things start to happen in your life. Um, number, number three, we have the gifts of the spirit. You can find those. You can go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, or you can go to Romans chapter 12, and you find two different lists of <clears throat> gifts of the Holy Spirit. I don't, I don't think they're exhaustive lists. I think there are many, many more gifts than this. Uh, you know, the very first person in the Bible who's said to be filled with the Holy Spirit is Abazael and Oholiab. You know who they were? If you look in Exodus 31, they were artists who were tasked with the job of, of making the beautiful stuff inside the tabernacle. They were the first, person, first people to be described as being filled with the Holy Spirit for a job of artistry. Isn't that cool? I love that. I think that maybe it's possible for a person's spiritual gift to be to make beautiful art in the world. <clears throat> Scripture is ambiguous, I think, as to if you can have one gift or if you can have many gifts. I think it's ambiguous to whether or not a person can have one gift now and then maybe a different gift at a different point <clears throat> in their life. My guess is that each one of us has probably has one primary gift and that, and that we kind of uh, mediate lots of other things through that one particular gift. I, I know someone who, when they talk about their gift, they have the gift of encouragement. Now, they're a, they're a great teacher. They, they, you know, they do like evangelism a lot. But what they say is, I want to encourage, if I, if I meet a Christian, I want to encourage them. And so the gift of teaching comes through that gift. When they meet someone who doesn't know Jesus, they say, man, I want them to flourish. I want to encourage them. I want them to flourish. So I want them to know about Jesus. And so they say, so I do evangelism. It's not, it's not my gift, but it's a high value of mine. <laughs> and so I don't know what gift you have, but you have one. And God wants you to use it. He wants you to discover it, to look, what, what would it be like for all these other things to be mediated through maybe that one particular gift that the Holy Spirit has given you. So there's baptism of the Holy Spirit, there's being filled with the Holy Spirit, there's the gifts of the Spirit, and then finally, what we're going to be talking about for this whole series, uh, there's the fruit of the Spirit that we see in Galatians chapter 5. So let me read Galatians 5, we'll kind of read it, we'll, we'll try to give it some context, and different weeks we may kind of try to give context to this as we go, but um, Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 Paul writes this, it is for freedom, meaning that's the end game, your, you, you to live in freedom, liberty. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Pause. Let me give you some context to what's going on here. Um, Paul is writing to a church in Galatia that he visited. I think it's like Acts 13 or 14 that you can read about it when he went there. But he's writing to this church, <clears throat> these people. All of these people have trusted in Jesus. Some of them are Jews, some of them are Gentiles. And he's, he's taught them, discipled them, that they're free from the obligations to live under the laws of the Mosaic covenant. Rather that they should live in freedom, living for God, uh, Christ living within them, walking with the Spirit, that kind of language, okay? But what he realizes is, I have just created two dangers. The first danger is the person who goes, no, 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 I'm really comfortable with law. I would like law. I want something to obey. Give me a list. Give me something like that. I do really well with that. There's legalism on one side, right? 
And on the other side, license. Ah, rules are for the birds. That's ridiculous. Just, I'm free. I can do whatever I want, right? No restrictions at all. Utter freedom, right? License. And he realizes these are the two dangers. These are the absolute two dangers in the church that, again, I think still exist today. And he's dressing that. Verse 13, he says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not let your freedom become an opportunity for the flesh. Do you see who he's addressing there? But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, live by the Spirit, and you will never carry out the desires of the flesh. Pause real quickly. When Paul uses the word flesh, he's not merely referring to your body, like your body's a bad thing. Flesh is shorthand for Paul referring to um, anything that is part of the sinful, broken, screwed up world. Now, that could include bodily habits, right? I I mean, we have bodily habits that are not healthy. (laughs) But it also includes aspects of a person's feelings, their will, which is bent towards self, um, their emotions, it might be, um, a number of, of things, desires, all that sort of thing. But it's that shorthand way of addressing that. Verse 17, for the flesh desires against the spirit. That's the spirit of God. And the spirit against the flesh. There's tension between living the way I want my kingdom be done, my will be done, (laughs) and the spirit, God's will be done. For these things are opposition to one another so that whatever you want, you may not do these things. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. And then verse 19, this gets us to our main text that we'll be springboarding off of. He says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, things which I am telling you in advance, Just as I said before, that the one who practices such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit. So here's what he's saying. The fruit of you living a life of my will be done, the fruit of a life which is, is, is absolutely, hey, I'm calling the shots, I'm the captain of my own destiny, it's gonna, it's gonna involve tons of stuff looking like that. But a life where you say, I want Jesus' will done. I want to be led by the Spirit. Here's how it's going to look. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. He says, against these things, there is no law. Meaning, if this was a picture of your life, law would be unnecessary. (laughs) It wouldn't even be necessary to have a law if this is, because the purpose of law was that this would be the outcome. Now, those who belong to Christ, remember, baptizo, they've been placed into Christ, have crucified the flesh together with its feelings and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, that's the command, let them tie your shoes. We must also follow the Spirit. We must not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So remember the two groups? We've got law enforcers and rule, rule rejectors, okay? Does that make sense? 
these two different groups. To the law enforcers, Paul says, what really matters is faith expressing itself through love. Love enables us to fulfill God's law properly, but without legalism. To the, to the law rejectors, Paul says, we should, that's, that's the imperative, <laughs> there's a rule, we should make sure that we serve one another humbly in love. Love enables us to use our freedom properly without selfishness. So here's what I want to do real quickly in our last few minutes. In your outline, um, Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. I want us to break it down into three triads. Um, one scholar by the name of Robert Rappa suggests that what Paul is doing, and I think there's good reason to believe this is accurate, what Paul's doing, he's not just giving a smack, like a shotgun approach, blah, here's a bunch of virtues. <laughs> he's actually giving us three triads, three groups of three, that relate to different spheres of our life, that if I'm walking in the Spirit, this is what my life is going to look like. So if you want to fill in blanks, there's just like three quick blanks to fill in here. The first triad <clears throat> is love, joy, and peace. And uh, Rappa says these are habits of the mind. Habits of the mind, kind of in a, in a general aspect. Now elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 13, earlier here, Paul says the most important one is love. In fact, he thinks that all of the ones kind of flow out of love because all the others are, un are understood as, again, kind of coming from that. Okay, so the first one is sort of the general habits of the mind, ha things like love, joy, peace. The second triad, <clears throat> patience, kindness, and goodness, he calls these special qualities affecting interpersonal relationships with people, which makes sense, right? Interpersonal relationships Things like patience, kindness, and goodness. How many of you know people who have those or who lack those? <laughs> you know, patience might be, you know, expressing uh, long-suffering amidst difficulty or amidst someone doing things to me and I don't seek revenge on them. The third triad, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is just general Christian conduct. Conduct is the word there. Now, this is not, remember, this is not, and this is what I want us to see, this is not just a list of virtues that, like, counteract the ones of the, of the flesh or anything like that. <clears throat> Go back to humans are like trees. See, this, this is the fruit that's the natural product of life being inside you. If a tree is alive, what does it do naturally? It, it just bears fruit. That's what a living tree does. Let me read for you some words by Christopher Wright, a, a, a scholar and pastor. He says, he says this, Why does a tree bear fruit? Not because there is some law of nature that says it must, but simply because of the life within it. Rising up from the soil and the water that feeds the root and flowing in the sap through every branch and twig, a tree does not bear fruit by, by keeping the laws of nature. If we can use our imagination and think like a tree, but simply because it is a living tree, being and doing what a tree is and does when it is alive. I love that picture. 
Let me, let me introduce one last um, kind of illustration for you, mixing metaphors, but uh, I love it because it so, to me, captures this idea. Um, there was a, uh, a pastor by the name of John Hunter. He was British. He passed away a number of years ago. He tells a story how one time he had, he had come to the States and he was going around speaking at different places and he was at Westmont College. And uh, his, his wife, Christina, wanted a cup of tea. They're British, okay? She wanted a cup of tea. And so the student there at Westmont, she said, oh, you know, I'll, I'll go get you one. And so went and got a styrofoam cup and turned on the, the faucet and got it real hot, felt it with her finger, filled it up with uh, tea, and then came back to her and he said, gave her the styrofoam cup with water, he said, with what looked like tea inside a surgical gauze. And he said, you, you Americans don't know how to make tea. And then he explained how they make tea in England. He said, what do we do is, he said, we get a kettle and we put water in there and we get it rolling, boiling hot. And then, and then we have a pot and we take the kettle and we pour it into the pot and then cover it up and put a, a tea cozy. You know what a tea cozy is? It's like a quilt kind of thing for, this, for a pot. He said, we do that and then we put the water back on and we get it again rolling, boiling hot. And then we get a little infuser, a little ball and we, and we open it up and we put the tea inside and close it back up. And then we go over to the pot, we take the tea cozy off and we throw the water out. The whole point of that was just to get the pot hot so when the next water came into it, it wouldn't get cooled down at all. And then in that pot, we pour the rolling, boiling water in there and put the tea infuser in there, cover it up and put the cozy on it again. And he said, and then something miraculous happens. He goes, it transforms because that process allows the tea to just infuse into this water. He said, and then when you take it out, he said, it doesn't look like water. It doesn't smell like water. It doesn't taste like water. Something absolutely miraculous has happened. And I would suggest that that's exactly what the Holy Spirit wants to infuse in your life so that your life is different. You're, you're not the same person. It's a slow process. It's arduous. It takes many, many years, doesn't it? Because it's organic. But you're not the same person. Oh, we all know it's still you but you're somehow different. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has been infused like in that tea into every corner, <laughs> every corner of your life. So things like peace and patience and kindness, that's actually accurate description of the new tea. <laughs> Self-control becomes a new accurate description of the tea that it's been changed to. When you came in, if you picked up a, a bulletin, um, inside of it is a prayer. I don't know how many of you know the name John Stott. Anyone here heard of that name, John Stott, before? Uh, he passed away a handful of years ago. John's an elderly man. He was um, a priest in the Anglican Church, uh, one of the worldwide leaders of the evangelical church. In fact, Time Magazine called him one of the 100 most influential people in the world. <clears throat> wonderful, wonderful pastor. And his friends, after he, after he died, talked about this idea that every single day, because he told them this, John Stott prayed this prayer. This was his prayer. <laughs> every single day for I don't know how many decades, before he got out of bed, he would pray these words. And his friends who knew him well, many of them to this day say, Stott was the most Christ-like person I've ever met in my life. And I wondered, I wonder if that's because 
God answered this prayer. So here's what I want us to do. Would you, would you, would you stand with me if you have this? Let's read the words of this prayer together. And then I want to make a challenge for us. Heavenly Father, I pray that this day I may live in your presence and please you more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray that this day I may take up my cross and follow you. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here's my challenge. Put this, maybe it's, maybe it's on your nightstand, uh, maybe it's by your sink, maybe it's on the back side of the bathroom door, I don't know, first place you go to when you wake up. I'm going to challenge you to join me before you do anything else. Pray this prayer every morning. It's not a, you miss a big, you know, a day, it's not a big deal. Don't, don't feel guilty about it. But pray this prayer, and let's see what happens. See what happens. I've been doing this for a couple weeks, and I would love to see what happens is if, if we as a community say, let's do this. Let's just try this challenge every single day. Before I do anything else, I'm going to pray this prayer and ask God to do these things. And maybe like Stott, maybe like John Stott, at the end of my life, people go, man, I saw Jesus in him. Because, you guys, this is a description of Jesus, if you didn't notice. <laughs> this is who he was. So during this next song, we're going to take communion. We always do this at the end of our night. Um, during this next song, I'll ask you to come to one of the different tables. There's two up here, several in the back, allergen-free in the middle. Take the elements on your own, the bread representing Christ's body broken for us, the cup, his blood shed on the tree. Take it in your own time, and then engage in the last couple minutes of worship, and then we'll be dismissed. My prayer for us this week is that we would live in the presence of the Father, and that we would please Him more and more every single day, that we would learn to take up our cross and follow Jesus, and that the Holy Spirit would, would fill us with himself and that he would ripen inside of us love and joy and peace in our minds. That he would ripen kindness, goodness, and faithfulness in our interpersonal relationships with each other. And that he would ripen faithfulness and gentleness and self-control as our general disposition of life. Amen? Amen. Hey, love you guys so much. Thanks for being here. I, I'm so glad to be back with you again. Have a wonderful week, and I will see you next Wednesday.